From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, welcome to another episode of The Close-Up. Each week, we present in-depth conversations with directors and actors about their new works and approach to filmmaking. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today, you'll hear a conversation with Rose McGowan, the actor-turned-director who has been making headlines recently for her public stance against gender inequality in Hollywood. McGowan stopped by the Film Society for one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. Before the discussion, we screened her directorial debut, the short film Dawn, which tells a disturbing tale of budding sexuality and desire. After that, we'll go to another recent free talk with British actor-director Alan Rickman. Rickman joined us to discuss his second feature as director, the romantic drama A Little Chaos, starring Kate Winslet, Matthias Schoenartz, and Stanley Tucci. A Little Chaos is now playing in select theaters. Hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. As an actor, Rose McGowan has worked with some of today's biggest directors, from Quentin Tarantino to Brian De Palma and Wes Craven. She recently took her talents behind the camera to direct the short film Dawn, which tells a disturbing story of a young girl's coming of age. Tara Barr plays Dawn, a quiet teenager longing to break free from her sheltered life. After beginning an innocent flirtation with a local boy, she thinks her dreams might finally be coming true. But as their relationship develops, Dawn gets a lot more than she bargained for. In addition to her passion for filmmaking, McGowan discussed the controversy that arose recently when she spoke out against sexism in Hollywood. The talk was moderated by Violet Luca of Film Comment. Let's listen in. First of all, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you guys so much for coming. It's an honor. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the point at which you knew that you wanted to tell stories and you wanted to get into directing as opposed to being an actress? I think I was just slow to realize it. I think I'd always been doing it in my head. I just didn't really when you're under contract to things and you're working 15 hours a day, it's quite difficult to actually, when you're yourself only and you're off hours, it's an odd part to like form your own kind of brain, if you will, and, and to really get, it took me a while to realize I was simply in the wrong job, which not that dramatic. I mean, it sometimes takes what it takes. And I, you know, I'm Irish, we're storytellers, and I love telling stories. I come from a family of storytellers, and that's what I want to do. That's what makes me happy. And that's what, you know, my life's work has been making people feel something, anything. You know, even if they don't like it, it's something. And I think I'm just continuing that, but in a different way. Definitely. So can you talk a little, a little bit about um, where the idea for this short came about? Because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of a Joyce Carol Oates sort of a feel, and especially given the time period and everything. I mean, there's definitely that influence under it. I was doing a Flannery O'Connor piece originally, and I lost the rights. I had the four locations. 
I'm the producer. I'd literally come from nailing down the fourth location when I got the call from the Flannery Foundation saying that if I was a no-name director or person from Ohio, then they would have let me do it. But because I was a na- like a person that people knew, I couldn't do it. It was very odd. I was like, okay. So luckily the writers, Joshua Miller and Mark Fortin, who's superb writers, um, they let me lock them in a room at a hotel, and I said, this is the last line that I need. This is the last situation that I need. These are my four locations. Go. And it actually worked out exactly as it was meant to. And did you give them, aside from sort of the constraints of these locations, did you give them a lot of direction on where they should take the story? Or Well, you know, they know my interests. They know me very well. I've been friends with them for a really long time, and I've always been really fascinated by women's culture and women in that period just got screwed, you know, basically. Just really a tough, tough time. Really a schism between, you know, this post-war... My mother was raised by, like, a Dawn type of mother. And just seeing what their lives were like and how much change happened from the beginning, 1960, say, to 1970. I mean, that's just a massive cultural shift. And all of a sudden, you've been trained to be like a Dawn, and then you cut to, like, seven years later, and it's burning your bra, and you're not cool unless you're sleeping with all the guys and free love, but meanwhile, you've been programmed to please everybody. So it kind of fascinated me. Don didn't get to grow up and experience that joy, but um, it's it's part of that, and it's also, I like quite stylized things, and it it kind of lent itself to that as well. And you did all of the set design on this, correct? So, I mean, did you reference any films or just, you know, paintings, any sort of visual culture when coming around to that? Well, the bedroom, Dawn's bedroom, is my homage to one of my all-time favorite, and I think a perfect film, The Parent Trap, the original, um, from 1961. And, I mean, down to the stuffed animal on the bed, that was my, like, tip of the hat. Thank you for that. And it was a favorite family film as well, so I grew up on it. And the rest of it was just... What I knew, you know, I've restored about seven houses for fun, and I, I, my father loved craftsmen's, and he would say things like, I know that you're going to understand, we only have $2 to eat for, you know, a day for this week, but I found this amazing chandelier that goes perfect with the one from 1918. I know you'll understand, Rose. And I did. And uh, design is, you know, a really integral part of my life. Um, I kind of on purpose wanted to make Don's parents upper class so I could get the exact furniture that I wanted. <laughs> but I didn't have to buy a new house for it so it worked out really well for me did you end up keeping it? no no my house is actually like more like 1970s Milo Boffman kind of Halston era stuff but I love that period so that's what's great fun I also wanted to say something honestly about like class disparity and I, you can do that with a really beautiful perfect couch and a boy who's sitting on it probably in dirty jeans and stiff and uncomfortable I, I saw an IMDb, and I don't know if that's accurate. Do you have a, you're working on a feature right now? I am working on a feature. It's called The Pines. I'm hoping to shoot, you never know what happens, um, end of October, upstate New York. And it's set in 1971, so I'm like working towards the future, getting there slowly. Yeah. But um, it's, it's a really happy movie about a girl in a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> it's laughs. A lot of laughs. No, it's a girl who actually, um, I gave her something called MES, and it means she hears like atonal and discordant musical notes everywhere she goes. 
So something like a person like trailing tin cans after their just married car. Um, but she can't prove it to the people in the institution, so they make her leave, actually. And it's about trying to rejoin society when, in fact, all you want to do is stay in this small, hidden world. And she gets taken in by this family of healers that don't quite work within the confines of regular medicine. And I'm going to be using a lot of... I'm calling it kind of an art thriller because I'm going to be layering in a lot of... Um, James Terrell is a huge influence of mine, lighting-wise. And I'm going to be... Like, there's a scene where there's a pyramid in the forest and she's hallucinating it and the producers were like, well, how are we going to build that? So we're not. We're going to make this out of light. Simple, but beautiful. So you can do so much. It's really exciting. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I think now we're going to turn it over to the audience. Thank you. Uh, I'm a huge supporter of women directors and I've been a judge at the Ethereal Film Festival for three years in a row. So I saw this film last year and it was really cool to see that happening. Have you, uh, as far as, have you already raised the money for your film? Do you have that all together? And it's are halfway you, there. Halfway there. And uh, will so you... You guys can donate on the way out. Be <laughs> awesome. Be a it's pal. A, hey, even He's Spike, got a bag. Yeah, Spike Lee did a Kickstarter on the last one. You know, I mean, you never, never know. So you're showing this in 2015, and are you continuing to screen Dawn as you approach this new feature that you're working on now? If it comes up, sure, why not? And, you know, I just put it on YouTube for free. There's a lot of different kind of platforms that would have paid me I, I, not very much money, I'm sure, um, to put it on, but I just want people to see it. I just want to promote art and thought and something beautiful that makes you feel something, you know? And um, so it's, it's for the people. But, but really, actually, it is, you know? That's who I did it for, and, and myself, but I'm really glad. It was nice to see you at Etheria, and it's great to see you here. Um, now that you're doing like your own directing stuff, do you have any interest in acting anymore, even if it's in your own films? You know, I was thinking about it. There's this one script I got to um, potentially direct or to direct, and I, and I was looking at it, and I was like, I don't know who else would want to act in this role because it's such a horrid person. But I love this horrible person. But I don't know who's like, is, you know, it's literally about a woman and she's a major alcoholic mess up who's like steals her dying father's dog and like vomits on the taxi driver she's giving like oral sex to. And I'm like, I don't know who else is gonna do that. I might have to. Why not? God damn it. But I don't have any plans to. If, if no one else comes to mind to do something as flat-out obnoxious and awesome as this, I'm just going to have to step right up. But I'm, I'm, it's, not my, it's not my intent. I didn't um, start directing in order to give myself good roles because that's just not... Like, I never really thought about things as an actor, and I would always kind of cringe when people would be like, oh, this is an actress. I'm like, What? Like, the, it just didn't, the label didn't work with me. The idea of what an actor or actress, I should say, is, especially, like, one from Hollywood is, never really sat well with me, and it always felt like a weird, honestly, skin that I was deeply uncomfortable in and couldn't figure out a way out of, you know? And it took quite a few years of just disengaging and, um, like, kind of going into my version of the Witness Relocation Program to get out of it, because, like, how do you get out of being famous? And at one point, like, very, very famous. And I was like, I, this does not work for me. I can't live my life this way. I don't feel like being chased out of the Vatican by hordes of German tourists. This is not fun. And I didn't actually sign up for it. I was discovered. 
Um, so I never really approached, at, at a very young age, I never had that full, like, this is my passion, this is what I'm going to do, but I love art and I love film. So I stayed in it because it made sense, but this makes more sense. Sorry, long story short. Oh, long story long. <laughs> On that point, you've talked in the past about feeling very restricted about you know, what is expected of an actress and particularly um, the screenshot of the casting call that you posted on Twitter. <laughs> which is Who like, knew that was going to be such a situation? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I just thought it was funny. Oh, in its tragicomic way. Yes. I mean, is it, I mean, because just looking at it, I mean, um, is, it, is it normal to tell the actress to please make sure you read the script? Because that's, I was like, I, that, that was, was really... the part that stuck with me too. Like, <laughs> please make, and it's an Adam Sandler movie. Right. So, please make sure you read the script so you understand the context of the scenes. I'm like, I'm fairly sure if I didn't read the script, I'd still understand the context of the scenes. <laughs> right. Also, I'm not going to read the script, but okay. Um, and then pr- my, the other favorite was parentheses push up bras encouraged. Yeah. Tight, tight jeans, leggings. Yeah. That was bad. So do you feel less restrained as a director thus far? Well, it's interesting because I've had a number of people that um, work in, in, you know, kind of on the, uh, I don't know, like the publicity side. Not my film publicist, but ones in Los Angeles. I don't even have a publicist or an agent. I don't, like, for for acting, I don't don't work with them. Um, Who've said, well, now you need to start dressing different now that you're a director. So you're right. I should start wearing dad jeans, puffy white tennis shoes, grow my hair out fuzzy in a baseball cap. I was like, no, I'm actually a director. I could wear a bikini and I would still actually be a director. Uh, it doesn't really pertain to it at all. And I'll still be me no matter what. So suck it, you know, pretty much. <laughs> we got a question in the back. I've been asked that, and I know a lot of people do shorts to kind of either get funding for the feature or or not, and I kind of want to leave it as is. You know, I was really, I wanted to see if I could make a full story in a very limited amount of time, and I did, and that's enough for me. And I think if it goes on, if there were to be any feature film, it would be post the killing. I think I see kind of a road trip, actually, and, and more mayhem, probably. But I, it's not my intention. But I, I just think it exists in its own little thing. Yeah. And I guess working, I read somewhere that you really, you sort of were new to shorts. And you really haven't seen that many. But I guess given that you didn't have that background, do you, what sort of things did you bring to it instead? Like, I, I believe you said that you wanted to sort of make like a three-act film. Yeah. But very short. Right. I, I didn't really, I don't usually do research on how other people do things in order to do them um, in kind of anything I do. Um, I do music stuff, but I don't, I listen, not on purpose, I just don't listen to that much music. Um, I mean, I listen to very specific kinds of people. I'm really bad with like new stuff. Like, and, and in a lot of ways, same with short films. And, and you know, I write a lot, so I limit my film exposure sometimes completely. Um, just so I don't have other voices in my head and something polluting kind of the way, the track that I'm on, especially when I'm in the mode of doing something. Um, Trevor Groth, who's you know, one of the head programmers at Sundance, who's an amazing guy, he's like, I tell my directors you know, short, to watch a ton of short films before they do a short film. 
that's valid. It's just not my approach, and it honestly just didn't occur to me. I've read a lot of short stories. Like, so from my cues tend to be more from literature than um, in art and, and uh, music than from, from other films, really. So what sort of, I guess, do you have favorite authors that you sort of return to? Well, for my style of editing for Dawn, which was pretty unsparing, um, was taken from Hemingway. He's one of my favorite authors. He was really a tough, tough editor. And I read A Movable Feast when I was 11, and it always stuck with me. I don't know how. And then, you know, his, um, his six-word short story that he wanted to see if he could do a full story in six words, Baby Shoes for Sale, Never Worn. And that always stuck in my head. I'm like, he wrote a full story in six words. I wonder if I can do that with a movie. And so I did. Do we have another question? What's your favorite part about the creative process? Because it seems like you have a whole wide range of influences and things that you like to participate in. It doesn't seem like there's a pond that you don't want to dip your toe in. But what's your favorite part? What is my, that's a great question. I think the two words that you said, creative process, I think that's what it is. It's feeling like compelled to create. You know, my father, um, my sisters are here, our father, was an amazing artist, and my mom, you know, was a writer, and I was lucky enough to grow up with people that didn't see things in, quote-unquote, like, a normal way, whatever that is. I, we kind of saw the odd things everywhere, and those are, those are my loves. So for me, like, everything's creative. Like, the pattern behind your, your head right now is reminding me of, like, something that's almost talking to me musically. I get, like, I see things everywhere, which is great. It's a lot of information, which is why I kind of limit my exposure to things sometimes because my head explodes. But it's, I think it's the doing. I think it's just like, yeah, like I'll take any amount of exhaustion. I'll do anything. I will work my ass off because I have to create. I just have to. I don't know what else to do. And I think that's why particularly being just, just an actor was very difficult for me because it didn't, it was on somebody else's time. Here's when you're allowed to create something. And by the way, what you're going to create is really something from my mind. So it's, I think, it's just the process. And that's what's amazing, you know? And I'm hoping when I'm 80, I'll be finding new creative and exciting new pathways to do stuff. It's, I'm kind of interested right now in the virtual reality world because people are doing these things for VR with just kind of goofy little things just to show what it can do. I'm like, well, what if someone actually did a movie? You could do three, you can do 20 minutes at a time and you can follow different storylines, but within a whole world of a movie. That's completely immersive. So that's something I'm currently fascinated by and like gonna start working on. Um, so that's a new frontier. Nobody even knows what they're doing. That's awesome. I wanna be doing that too. So it's kind of part of that. It's anything you can get away with, right? I'm just gonna try my best to get away with everything. You're doing a beautiful job. Thank you, Lily. Do you think that there's been any difference um, getting into directing as a woman than like, if you were a man? Like, have you noticed any, like, um, I don't know, I think that being a director is so different from being an actress. Like, have you noticed any differences just like, in terms of gender? Yeah, in a couple ways, in that people constantly mention it, um, which is like, huh? Yeah. Um, not you, but like, when a lot of the reviews, you know, because getting into Sundance for me was a huge honor. Just like, what? Like, as a director, it's a different ballgame. But pretty much every, almost every interview, we're, like, we're so shocked she could do this. Did I ever appear stupid? 
and the, the and and kind of harping on that sort of thing. And I, I'm fairly sure, you know, I, you know, if it were a male actor, they wouldn't be doing that. And there would have been sometimes quite a, a different set of questions. Yeah. And I would love, you know, to just be a director. It's a gender neutral position. And if other people have a problem with my being a woman, I don't. You know, I'm a woman in all things I do, but I'm a human first. So that's how I approach things. Um, I hope not. If so, I'll just bulldoze right over them. <laughs> cool. Um, and I mean, you wrote you wrote like a little manifesto about the ten points to make. You know. It wasn't actually, it wasn't a manifesto. I wrote, I, I, I know what you're talking about. There was this thing I wrote and it was, I spoke to a group of female producers and it was about, what I talked to them about was about being progressive, just as, as people. And it was, what I wrote was actually afterwards and I wrote it on my iPhone in a parking lot and it was geared towards men and women in every profession. But then when it got printed, they put in seven tips to fight sexism. I don't even think I mentioned that sexism. I didn't mention that word in there. It had nothing to do with it. I mean, that's just part of it, but it wasn't the point of it. And, and just by doing that, it reduced it and stuck it into this little category, which I found to be quite sexist. It was mostly, it was mostly sensible. It was, it was like sensible. Was just like, it was like, well, of course, you should not do that. But anyway. well, That needs to be apparently drummed over people's heads in Hollywood sometimes. Like, bam! Like, it's, there's amazing people there. I just want them to be more amazing. That's all. Yeah, I mean, it's like watching this film in New York. It's, some, it's sort of easy to be like, well, of course that was in the past, but so many things that happen every day are just like, well, no, we really haven't moved that far, if at all, in, in some No, and minds. I can tell you as an actress, I'm literally my own study for sexism, like day in, day out, with how you're treated by, you know, looking at, like I was getting sent all the different press on Dawn and there's some stupid newspaper in, uh, and it's like they do this all the time. Rose McGowan flaunts her bikini body. Really? I thought I was at the beach in, in wearing a bathing suit or like flirty outfit. I was wearing a t-shirt and, and like, what the hell are you talking about? And also, are they going to be like, Sean Penn in that sexy bikini brief? He's, no. No, they're not. So shut up and knock it off. You know, and stop being, like, fabulous at 40. Fuck you. <laughs> stuff that irritates me. Sorry. File that under stuff that irritates me. I went off a little bit. Hi, guys. You're here, right? Sorry. No, everyone, you everyone... see now how my mouth gets me in trouble consistently, but I don't really care. Do we have any more questions out here? I have a question. Oh, sure. You have the mic, so please. Okay, um, my question's about like the title Dawn and why she was named Dawn? Like, how did you get to that? Very good question. It was originally titled Eileen, and I was like, huh? Um, and then I, liked, I, I researched names that were popular in that era, and I loved Dawn because it has a double meaning, you know? And hoping that even after people saw this, maybe it's a dawn of a new era, it's a dawn of a new era for her, one that's, you know, the sun sets on that dawn so to speak. And, and there was a double meaning. Thank you for catching that. You're the first person who's ever asked about that. Hi, um, thank you for a beautiful film. I really like it. Thank you. Um, I want to ask a question about the beginning, because the beginning scene, it's, um, 
it's a, it's a theme from the like the ending. Yeah. I wonder uh, what's the what's the idea behind it. That's thank you for catching that. What I I noticed, you know, and and I'm an audience member first and foremost, have been my whole life. I've noticed the pattern of films is usually that psychologically, as an audience member, you feel like you have about a minute, minute and a half to settle into your chair, get your popcorn, do your stuff, and then, because the title sequence is coming up, and it's pretty, it was pretty images, and I didn't, I wanted to, like, punch people in the head right away, basically, just like, bam, this is what it is, and then gentle them, even if they're not fully cognizant or really, like, settled into what they're seeing, I wanted to imprint a sense of dread, and, and that, even if I think the brain isn't fully like cognizant of like, what am I, what am I seeing? Oh, what, someone's talking really quick? Um, then I go into the kind of candy-coated world and the pink, you know, the peachy pink title and, and it kind of lulls you into this false sense of security, but underneath I've already imprinted a sense of dread that, that you know, I wanted to continue to build, basically. And I also didn't want anyone to say, oh, you tricked me. I'm like, no, I didn't. I told you exactly what was gonna happen. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. But cool. thank you all so much for thank coming. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Violet. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Want to experience the Film Society of Lincoln Center's rich slate of year-round programming in person? Then become a member today. Since the 1960s, the Film Society of Lincoln Center has introduced audiences to countless filmmakers from around the globe. Our extensive programming includes 5,000 screenings each year with new releases, retrospectives, special events, premieres, and annual celebrations like the prestigious New York Film Festival, New Director's New Films, Rendezvous with French Cinema, the New York Jewish Film Festival, and so much more. Supporters in their 20s and 30s can join New Wave, a membership program that provides year-round access to premieres, parties, and exclusive events. For more information about becoming a member of the Film Society, visit www.filmlink.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. The Palace of Versailles shall be the heart of our kingdom with gardens of exquisite and matchless beauty. Heaven shall be here. Are you a believer in order? Order? Over landscape. Well, I admire it. This abundance of chaos. This is your Eden? My search for it. You're inviting new ideas into the gardens. Why? Welcome to Versailles. After a string of standout supporting roles in Die Hard and Sense and Sensibility, Alan Rickman broke out in 1996 with his Emmy and Golden Globe winning role in TV's Rasputin. Since then, he has enjoyed an acclaimed career that includes memorable roles like Severus Snape in the Harry Potter movies and President Ronald Reagan in Lee Daniels' The Butler. His second film as director, A Little Chaos, is a period drama starring Kate Winslet as Sabine, a talented landscape designer who, while building a garden for King Louis XIV, played by Rickman, becomes romantically entangled with the court's renowned landscape artist, played by Matthias Schoenartz. A Little Chaos premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival and began its theatrical run last weekend. On the occasion of its release, Alan Rickman joined IndieWire's Eric Cohn in our amphitheater to discuss the film in front of a packed house. So let's go now to that conversation. Do it. Although the elements may treat us cruelly, in the end we have only our instincts. 
patience, care, and a little warmth from the sun are our best hope. So thanks for being here. Pleasure. Um, it's been a long time since you directed a movie. It's, I think, what, seven, 17, 18 years, something like that. And this is only your second film that you directed. So tell us a little bit about sort of the decision to get behind the camera again after so much time. Uh, well, it wasn't, it's not a kind of earth-shattering uh, event in my head. It was, uh, although, of course, you can't do it unless there's a script you want to work on. Um, it was practical. Uh, I'd been directing during those intervening years in the theater quite a bit, but um, I was a bit busy with Harry Potter. And, <laughs> and when I started it, there were only three books. And <laughs> so I didn't know that I'd still be doing it. 10 years later, so, uh, and you can't, it's just practical, you can't direct a film unless you know you have over a year at your disposal, and every year, even though I got it organized to my advantage, and we all did, um, I, so I was only shooting for Harry Potter for seven weeks of every year, and meanwhile going off, and you know, I came here and did a Broadway run and, uh, in the West End, and I did, uh, made other movies, and was directing in the theater, but it wasn't until the HP experience. <laughs> Is that how they call it internally finished. now? <laughs> Sorry? That's how they call it internally now? That's the no, I'm word. saying it now. <laughs> now it's a thing. No, no, no. Well, but it is a very interesting choice. I mean, a lot of times when you see projects on, on this scale, that they're, they're period dramas, they're adapted from some exi existing text or some widely circulated story. This is actually, at the very beginning of the movie, we're told that the only thing that's real about it was that there was this garden in Versailles. So how much of the story is real and how much of it kind of came together with the script? Um... I mean, I, a lot of directors, I'm sure, spend their time developing scripts. I was with Ellen Curis yesterday, who's the DP of this film, and she was scrolling, because she works a lot with Scorsese, and she happened to be scrolling his name on IMDb, and she said, he's got 15 things in development. <laughs> I don't know what that experience is. Um, <laughs> all I know is that this script dropped through my letterbox, um, Alison Deegan wrote it, whatever it says on the screenplay credit. Um, Jeremy Brock and I were there as kind of structural engineers moving things around and making them financeable. Uh, but it's her script. It's her first film script. She know, knew me because I had a kind of talking, working relationship with her husband, Sebastian Barry, who's a wonderful novelist and playwright. And it landed through my letterbox. There was 180 pages of it, and, um, and she's dyslexic. So there was no punctuation. <laughs> well, I say that, there were actually commas after every two words. And this is, not, this is a, sort of an archaic dialogue, too, so that makes it even harder, probably. Well, and also, she's Irish, and... Uh, <laughs> 
um, in a way, that's what I loved about the script, is that, uh, you know, there's that slightly heightened quality to the Irish version of English, and uh, that was evident. And dyslexia aside, I kind of fell for it immediately, and it just had to wait until I was ready. But right from the beginning, to answer your question, um, Kate Winslet's character is, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you do, a complete invention. It's a fantasy. And, uh, and I know some people have had problems saying, this film is implausible. And you go, yep. <laughs> That's the point. Uh, this is a strong, independent woman uh, with a profession and uh, in 17th century France. And that couldn't have happened. Women were decorative objects that high up in society. Yeah, they were cooking and cleaning and sewing and, you know, menial tasks. But so this is very much a script written from a feminist standpoint. Sabine didn't exist. Louis, we know, did exist. Lenotre did exist, except at the time of this story, he would have been 70. <laughs> Not so good for a love story. So <laughs> we sliced 35 years off his age. Um, and yes, that, that garden that is built at the end of the film uh, is, I don't think it's called the Rockwork Grove, I think it's called La Salle de Bal, and it is an outdoor ballroom. It does exist at Versailles in exactly the position that we show it in at the end of the movie. Um, and if you see a film ever called Le Roi Dance, um, you'll see that they actually filmed in it. And, James Merrifield, our production designer, did an incredible job copying something that really exists at Versailles with a working fountain. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, in some ways, the way that you sketch it out, it almost sounds like you were thinking of it as, as fantasy. So what, what, is sort of the, the, what were the rules of this world that you were creating? I mean, in, to, where does the history start and the sort of invention begin, as it were? Well, I suppose, I mean, everything, uh, I was saying to you earlier, that, or to an interviewer, not you, to somebody else I was talking to. There's a lot of us. Somewhere along the line in the editing process, and this was quite a long one, not that I didn't know this, but it always comes and hits you around the side of the face. A film asserts itself in the editing process, and you find out what it's about. And now it's this is what I was saying to you, uh, is that I've, it kind of doesn't belong to me anymore. It's so uh, left me and is living its own life. Um, and the rules of that are to do with its themes, I think. You know, there's obviously a feminist theme to it. Um, there's the film, and I'm talking to you like you've seen the film. This is the problem. Um, I think it's about compassion and loss and the making of a work of art. And uh, the title is part of it, too. Uh, a little chaos doesn't mean anything unless you put it right next to uh, a great deal of order. And that maybe um, uh, making of a work of art or forming of a relationship or living your life or whatever that has to do with the fact that those two words have to exist together. You, they def, they've defined each other. 
you don't have chaos without order and vice versa. And it's also a very funny movie in certain ways that you don't often see with this material, maybe because people treat it as too remote or, or too sacred. But from the very beginning of this movie, it does make you laugh. So what is sort of your relationship to using comedy in those sort of scenes throughout the film? I'm all. I mean, <laughs> I'm always grateful for it. And frankly, whatever I do, I'm always looking for the jokes because um, I think it um, it subverts. And it, as long as it's connected to truth, and as long as it's not just a gag, and comedy can it doesn't have to be just a funny line. Comedy can be out of just situation, and you recognize something about people weakness, vulnerability, uh, is funny. Um, as much as a custard pie in somebody's face, and I'm not above that either. Uh, it's all, I, I just think it's all roots to, to say to people, uh, especially if it's a once upon a time experience, you just say, come on, you, you're involved in this, and this is for you and about you, so, Come on, join us. You obviously have years of experience as an actor. How does that affect the way that you direct your, your, the rest of your cast? I mean, Kate Winslet, Matthias Schoenert, these aren't newcomers, but at the same time, you've been doing this a little bit longer. So how does that sort of affect the process? Kate's been at it a while, too. Uh, <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> Believe me, she knows. I mean, in the best way, she knows what she's doing. And, uh, and when I say the best way, I mean that she comes to the set totally prepared. Uh, she knows exactly what the story is, and the clothes have been sorted out, and she's done her homework. But where she's a gift and where she and I agree is that acting to me is about accurate listening and uh, and when if and when you see the film you'll see that the great gift she gives any director is the fact that you can put the camera on her at all times and a lot of the best work of hers in the film and I think it's one of the best things she's ever done is uh, to do with her brilliant listening and because she's playing somebody who has to figure out who she is through the course of the whole film. And, and that's by listening to other people and seeing her mind change and her mind work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy, and in my case, not advisable to be having to act in the film that you're directing, but, you know, budgets make it <laughs> the choice for you. Well, not for me, but I'm not sure if Gail's here, but uh, one of our producers, it's kind of, it's like a w metaphoric whip is cracked and get down there and play that part. So um, the good thing is that we both believe in listening and so in a way it takes care of itself if it's well written. You, you're not focusing on what you're saying, you're focusing on what you're hearing. If you keep that alive, then there's a wire between you that stays live too. And, and then you just need a monitor. And I don't mean one of those things <laughs> on legs, I mean a human monitor. And in my case, very much the producers watching uh, the 
takes and Ellen Curas looking down the lens. And sure. each other. Did we believe that? Were we talking to each other? You keep mentioning Ellen Curras, your cinematographer, so I want to bring that out a little bit. I mean, if anyone's not familiar with her work, they should be, because she's one of the great cinematographers working today. Um, so somebody like that's worked on, a, on such a broad range of projects. What was the collaboration with her like for you? Uh, it was wonderful. Um, it was an instinctive choice. The first time I met her, about an hour later, I said, do you want to do this? Because uh, she'd read the script and uh, she came, we met downtown here in New York, uh, and she came in the door holding a book of photographs by Sally Mann, if everybody knows who she is. Um, famous for taking somewhat challenging and controversial pictures of her children. And one of the central themes that Kate has to work with in this film is about a de her dead daughter. And uh, that uh, there's a kind of Sally Mannish quality to that memory. She has to try to pull it into some sort of reality, deal with it, and move on. Um, and it was clear that Ellen and I were going to have a very good imaginative relationship. Uh, I was worried that this was going to be a little crippling for her because she's, you know, she's quite famous for having the camera on her shoulder and being very free. If you've seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know that, whoa, that camera's moving. If and when you see this film, you'll see that, boy, was she glued in one spot a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, but I think she enjoyed that. Um, we used to travel into the set every day together in the car so that we talked through what we were doing. Uh, joined at the hip would be what we were. That scene, however, is an example of where it was difficult for her because I fell on that room. That's a room in Ham House in London. We shot the whole film in England, by the way, but that's a, a, f a house called Ham House in Twickenham. And, uh, and that room was perfect for me because it was all brown paneling and brown um, shutters. And uh, there was this silent little war going on on the set. Every time she would open a shutter, I used to walk and close it. <laughs> but of course I was killing her because she couldn't get any light into the room at all. Uh, but as far as I was concerned, that was the point. Um, and I'm naive enough to not to know that I was really making it impossible for her. What is your relationship to the theater versus film in terms of you know, where you think different stories belong? God, I, don't, I don't really like rule books. Um, I, I, well, I can't imagine this is a play for a start, so, uh, but yes, The Winter Guest was. <clears throat> What's interesting there is different countries react in different ways, and when The Winter Guest opened in England, uh, a lot of the journalists there said, well, of course, this was a play, and we can see its source. And when it opened here, the same journal, same type of journalist said, how was this ever a play? So it depends where you're coming from. Um, I don't know how to answer your question, except that I don't really believe in rule books in the theater or on, on film. Uh, 
you know, the, one of the pieces I directed during this gap uh, was a 90-minute monologue. Um, I couldn't imagine that I was ever going to turn that into a piece of theater, but, uh, but it was incredibly theatrical as it turned out with, um, you know, helicopter assaults and everything, but it was still one woman alone on stage for 90 minutes. Well, um, how, how has your relationship to the theater evolved o over the course of the last, let's say, decade and change, being involved in, you know, all kinds of different movies and also finding space to direct on your own? I mean, what, what role does the theater play versus film? I mean, not to put it into precise rules, but it does seem like you find room for both, which a lot of actors can't. Uh, it's my training. It's what I did uh, for so many years before I, from nowhere, made a movie and then never expecting to had some kind of movie career. So uh, it's in my DNA. Uh, it's, uh, it's my religion, in a way, theatre. It's, uh, it's who I am, I guess. Um, but... But film is too, uh, because film is for everybody. Theatre isn't, is not part of everybody's language, but film is part of everybody's language. So, you know, as a human being, you're watching movies all the time. Uh, the tragedy to me is, is this current battle between uh, film and television and what that's going to do. It's great that great writers are working for... Uh, television, but it's not so great that people can put uh, great writing on pause while they make a cup of coffee or, or they watch it alone. It's a shame that I fear for the, you know, 300 people in the absolute dark watching a story together. But you recently did a television show, right? Or you're, you're working on TV a little bit. Song of Lunch, yeah. Well, that... That, was, uh, that would never have been a play and could never have been a film. That could only have been a piece of television. So, uh, and I've got nothing against television. I think it's great. It's just don't let one kill the other. That's what worries me a bit. The other thing that that opens up is the question of the kind of roles you're offered versus the opportunities that you seek out. I mean, especially in a post-Harry Potter world, I can imagine all kinds of different offers must be coming in for the sort of roles you may or may not want to do, but how does, you know, what's your relationship to, to those kinds of opportunities versus things like this, for example, which, you know, you basically made happen through your own initiative? Um, you're at the mercy of prevailing forces, and um, if you're talking about film, uh, it's harder and harder to get an independent film made, if that's what you're talking about. And uh, the prevailing mood, of course, is for huge action popcorn comic book movies, because um, that's what the studios know will fill cinemas. Uh, in the same way as uh, theatres are getting more and more filled with musicals that you've heard of. You know, if it, it, Aladdin could have been a terrible musical, but it doesn't matter because it's called Aladdin. Mm -hmm. 
so people will go to it and I don't need to and I'm sure it's great and in fact uh, a great friend of mine designed it Bob Crowley who's a genius uh, so there's every reason to go see it but uh, at the same time it's a dangerous trend because it means that it's harder and harder to take risks that redefine the word and theatre doesn't exist unless you redefine the word all the time what is theatre? I don't know, let's find out uh, what is film? Let's find out. You know, I spent this afternoon watching Tulane uh, Blacktop, which I hadn't seen. That was made in 1971, and you can't believe it. And you think, that film is not going to get made now without a lot of luck um, and a fair wind behind it. Maybe so, a Kickstarter uh, campaign or something like that. Sorry? Maybe a Kickstarter campaign or something like that. The sort of climate we live in now. But it, for you, working on this film, did it feel liberating in any particular way? Because, you know, it's it's not a studio project. You weren't compromised in that in any particular way in that sense. No, I th it was a kind of miracle, uh, you know, that I had brilliant producers who apart from occasionally coming up and whispering in my ear when we were at Blenheim Palace, Alan, you have three days here. You cannot go over. <laughs> uh, apart from that kind of imprisonment, unutterable freedom and support. Uh, for, as you've, you know, you've said, a very kind of unnameable project and slightly strange and it, it doesn't obey the rules and it's part history and part fantasy and it's it's as serious it's got some serious things to say but it's also funny uh, it's in small dark rooms and it's in big spaces uh, I don't know I guess it fulfills my brief like I have no idea what to do next or what I'd want to do next. I mean, the next film that I'm in uh, that is coming out is I'm playing the head of the British Army and it's about uh, the moral dilemma governments face in the use of drones against terrorists. So I don't know how that came after this. <laughs> It's a great thing that you're in the movie because you're really good in it. And, and these, these clips are, are great examples of why. Before we open it up to the audience, one of the things I, I would like to bring up with you along those lines is sort of, you know, over the course of this conversation, you've mentioned if people go see this, you know, you're sort of maybe, maybe hoping to nudge them along a little bit. It could happen. But there, you have so many different kinds of roles and projects you've done over the years, and a lot of people have only sampled them in fragments. So what, what sort of relationship do you have to the, the degree to which people understand what you've done? You know, to, to take, say, Harry Potter, for example, a lot of people saw those movies, but if they've only seen those movies, are, do, do you want to push them to go rush out and see the rest of them? Or how do you, how do you sort of relate to that, those kinds of expectations? Uh, I, I, I don't know that I do. Uh, every, every job one does, you're just trying to make flesh out of a person and that person has their own thoughts and feelings and you're trying to make people believe, believe you. Uh, 
Um, sure, but when you have people stopping you on the streets and they recognize you from just this one project, do you sometimes wish it was that other one instead? Um, no, because I think that people are... It's this thing about, you know, once upon a time and the lights go down. I think people hold those experiences very dear to themselves. And if they're stopping you on the street, it's because it's meant something to them. Uh, and you can't legislate for that. Uh, and you can't interfere with it either. And you also can't tell them they're wrong when they... <laughs> They say, I thought this or I felt that. All you can say is, well, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I hope that uh, these characters are different and I hope that they have their own lives. It's, it's about, you know, letting, it's a bit like this movie, you let them go. There are these people wandering about. One of them's got a black wig and, well, not to him, it's not a wig, but black hair and a black costume and well now he's rather dead so uh, <laughs> he's left the party in more ways than one but um, I, d I don't know how to answer it because you you live inside it while you're doing it and when you stop doing it it's over and then you move on to the next one and you and all you can do is know that your job is to hand yourself over completely to a director and a script and your fellow actors, in a way you're sort of not in charge of that. Uh, it's the job. <laughs> so we've covered a lot of ground, but I'm sure there's some questions in the audience. This one over here. Yes, I had a question for Mr. Rickman about the rehearsal process for the film. Um, do you believe as a director in doing a lot of rehearsal ahead of time or do you prefer to just kind of shoot and let the actors uh, perform? <clears throat> I think probably every film makes its own rules and every director would be a subdivision of that. You know, it's, it's going to be a budgetary thing for a start as to whether uh, that your producers are going to let you have rehearsal time. I did have 10 days. I think it's crucial for me. Uh, it means you establish a common language especially when you're dealing with slightly heightened language and you want everybody to be existing on the same plane. But having said that, uh, of course, uh, one honors the kind of work which uh, kind of runs at it. And because that's the glory of film, it can capture that unexpected thing that you're doing. Um, so they've got to exist side by side. This more relates to you as an actor in, in how, I wonder how you approach a part or a role for any kind of film. Just what, where's, where do you begin in, in the creation of a part and a character that's gonna move people? And, and um, I think when you, re first of all, you read something and you decide you want to do it. And the deciding you want to do it is in a way the way that it chooses you, because you're kind of not aware of the, what's happening. You're reading something and, well, first of all, you keep turning the pages, because <laughs> you want to know what happens. And so it's a story, something happens, and you want to be involved in that story. Uh, and then, certainly as a director, but, and also as an actor, um, 
images sort of jump out of good writing and you want to catch them. And in a way, they became, as an actor, they become, and if we say that during any script there's maybe eight or ten of them that are very strong images of what you look like, how you're sitting, how you're standing, what, what the, what's going on between you and another character. Those are the, it's like pegging them on a line and you, you know those are the things that are going to help you. And you might unpeg them and change them, but they're quite crude, uh, cartoon-like things. Um, so, you know, you don't get lost in too much subtlety. Um, there's got to be things that, that pull people in, even if you get out the sandpaper later and smooth them down. But I don't know is the answer. There's <laughs> another one up here. Um, Mr. Rickman, I was wondering um, if there's ever been a project that you've always wanted to do or a story that you've always wanted to tell, and if so, could you maybe share some of that with us? You know, I'm, I'm really not good at that question because <laughs> the trouble is that if you say, oh, I want to do this, 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 and this, it means you've already made some decisions and it means that you're going in as a bit of a closed book to a rehearsal room uh, and then you're going to fight. Um, and, and that's just not the, the way I've gone from one project to another. They've always, I've never quite expected to do that. You know, I remember when I did Private Lives uh, in London and here, uh, and it was first suggested, and I, I immediately said, I don't want to do Noel Coward. <laughs> and then somebody had the wise suggestion to say to me, have you actually read it? And I said, well, no, but I kind of know what it is. <laughs> and then I, you read it, and then, uh, and it was the same with Lindsay Duncan, who played in it opposite me. We both hadn't read it. We both, both made a kind of instant judgment, and it was wrong, because, and actually it was helpful, because it means you read it and you say, wait a minute, this is really good writing. And then at the very first rehearsal of that play, where you you know your your preconceptions mean you think you're holding a champagne glass throughout the whole thing and talking in a very clipped voice. Um, at the very first rehearsal, we just said it like we meant it. And then as we worked, Howard Davis, the director, the crueler we were to each other, the more he laughed. <laughs> so it means that you know stay open because you just don't know. Don't make these judgments because you just don't know how they're going to come and get a hold of you. So we're going to come back up to the front row here. There's some questions that have been sitting there for a long time. I really appreciate when you say you're not very good at answering questions and you answer it really well, by the way. <laughs> Hi. So um, earlier when you were talking about directing, you say that you constantly ask your actors questions. Um, could I ask what kind of questions you find the most interesting to elicit the performance you want? Well, a lot of it is um, cheeky use of questioning because an actor asks you a question and then you say, what do you think? 
Um, and it's not laziness. It's, it's experience of myself as an actor when a director has done that, like finding out. You know, it's a hard moment when you decide to direct because you just think, oh my God, I've got to walk in here and be impressive. And, uh, and <laughs> they're all going to stare at me and want answers. And, and it was a kind of um, flashbulb going off in my brain the day I realized that the most encouraging thing you can ever hear a director say when asked a question by an actor is when a director says, I don't know. And it actually relaxes you and uh, as an actor, because you think there's some vulnerability in the room and there's some uncertainty and we can work with that. So asking actors questions is part of that really. And then making sure that if they haven't asked themselves that question, they'll go away. And you know, the crude example is just saying, what did you have for breakfast? Your character. So you just give, every character you play has to have, a, you have to have a sense of what happened, even if it's not in the script, the moment you woke up. I'm gonna just pass it down. Hi, uh, my question is because of the fact that you have played many roles over the years, um, when you approach a new role, do you have to mentally prepare yourself for it ahead of time or are you able to just go on the set and feel like this is how this character would be? Well, I'm in the lucky position of having spent a lot of my time working on with great scripts, and I mean it when I say a great script tells you what to do. I worked with Peter Brook many moons ago back at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and uh, we did a production of Antony and Cleopatra, and he would come to see it from time to time during the run, and, uh, and then we'd all gather in a room backstage, and then he would say, how's it going? And we'd say, oh, this works, that doesn't work, and this is better than that, and this is getting better, this isn't. And he said, I'm always interested when uh, I listen to actors telling me about the life of the production, because here's one, that one thing won't change. You will never be better than this play. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually, that, again, that was a kind of relaxing moment. You thought, you know what, he's right. And it was something I saw that Kate Blanchett had said in an interview. She said, you know, you, as you work more and more and, uh, and you see your horizon, believe me, the more you move towards what you think is your horizon, the more that horizon will recede. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, kn I know that good writing will tell me what to do. It's an animal thing. It's a bit to do with training, but it, it, that's, just, that's just making it communicate and not stay trapped. But really, it's just to do with, you know, uh, it's something you can't take credit for. It's who you are. You, it was there when you're born, and uh, then you get something to read, and you hand yourself over to it, and, and something starts to live inside you. Um, I was able to ask you a question a few years ago about what it was like to not only watch yourself act, but sing as well and sing in Sweeney Todd. So my question today is... As well as what, sorry? Sing in Sweeney Todd. You oh. had to act and sing in it, so I can imagine that was even more difficult to watch. So my question today is, um, 
how hard is it to objectively direct, see yourself, act, and direct in this film, and how important was Ellen Kiros to that process? Ellen was important. Um, my Gail and Andrea and producers were very important. Uh, you know, the people who are watching the whole thing are important. Uh, I said to Jack Ravenscroft, the first AD, I asked him to do something he's trained not to do. You know, one of the great things about a film crew is no matter how stupid the thing that a director is about to do or ask for, they will support you. <laughs> <clears throat> They will, without complaint or raised eyebrows, they will go, fine, and make it happen. And I said to him, please, I, I, I promise you I mean this. If you see me about to make a dumb choice or screw up or you know, shoot a, an extra shot that isn't necessary, say so. I don't think he actually ever did because it's too ingrained, but occasionally he would say, do you really need that shot? And I learned that that was shorthand for don't. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, you, you make sure that you're surrounded by those people, and Ellen was one of them, but also in this film, almost everything I have to do is a two-hander. And so you absolutely trust the other actor, and the two of you know if something's feeling alive or not. Thank you. You want to hand it back right there? And then we'll finish up with the gentleman over there. Hello. Um, so I see a bit of a theme maybe. Uh, Kate Winslet in this movie lost her daughter. Um, Emma Thompson in The Winter's Guest was a recent uh, widow. Um, why is, is there a connection between both movies that you've directed? Um, is there a, a drive to uh, tell stories about women grieving, or am I just seeing things? <laughs> I suppose if you if you stay at this job long enough, people will start to see themes. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's like that, and there's 25 years between the two. Um, well, both the films I've directed have been written by women. I'm, that wasn't a choice, it just happened that way. Uh, uh, I am, I think it's interesting to have a, a, a script that's written by a woman fed through a male perspective. Uh, at the end of this film, she says, what about us? He says, we will shape each other. I find that an interesting and modern idea and, uh, and relevant for men. Uh, I like the fact that this film has a male character who is uh, restrained and vulnerable and doesn't know who he is either. Um, I don't know how we change things unless you explore. So it's about that as much as it is about the female character. In a way, that's been taken care of by Alison. And in a way, my job is to honor that. But, and, you know, and Kate will certainly be taking care of that. My job is to make sure it's matched so that there is an equal conversation going on. Thank you. We have one more over on the wall there. Yes. Uh, Just wait for the mic right quick. Small country uh, newspaper. And I 
my readers. Uh, Just use the mic so we can get it recorded. Yes, uh, my readers. I, I would think that maybe they would appreciate the movie because, as you mentioned, the manners and the evolving manners in the movie. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, you're saying that the manners in the movie are important? Uh, important to the movie. <coughs> Crucial. Yes. Yeah, because uh, although I hope that people see all sorts of modern echoes in the film and I hope they think it's a modern conversation and I hope they think it's a, a film about now as much as it's about then, but in order to do that, and in, in order to see the world that she's in and uh, and in a world that's male-dominated where women are just decorative objects, you've got to put her in a, into a context and that it's, it's what, when Kate and I worked together before on Sense and Sensibility, was crucial to Ang Lee and everybody working on that film. We spent weeks on how to bow and how to, um, but it, isn't, it wasn't even called bowing, it's called reverencing, and that tells you something. You make a gift of yourself, you don't just bow, you make a gift of yourself to another person, and if you have that context, then you know the world your character is living in. And for Kate to be truly independent and truly find out who she is, it's important that she's facing this male edifice headed up by Louis XIV. And the way you come into a room, the way you behave in front of these people, the way you stand, the way you sit is, uh, is crucial to all of that. Yeah. So the movie opens in New York this Friday, is that correct? Next? Uh, I think it opens on Friday, on the 26th right. in the US. Yeah. On the 26th. So if you like what you've seen today, and clearly you do from the reactions in the room, you should go check it out. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.